Check and make sure my pages are still in order here. Save myself an embarrassment. Well, good morning. I'd like to just uh, let you know, since Bob is never comfortable with making this announcement during the announcements himself, this time of year we have traditionally taken up a, a collection for Christmas for the pastor and Nancy. And uh, if you would like to uh, be a part of that, as uh, many of you have been, feel free to put that in the offering and designate it, and we'll take care of that for you. But uh, that will go on until uh, the Christmas service. So This morning, I have the privilege to begin this year's Advent series. Believe it or not, Christmas is just a few weeks away. Another year will be starting before we know it. We've entitled this uh, series this year, Hope, Love, Joy, and Peace for Those Who Need It. Anyone here that doesn't need one of those things? Yeah, I think it's for all of us, isn't it? Yeah, but there's so many more around the world that uh, need those things too. And they don't have uh, the, the um, experience with Christ that, that we do. And that's, that is part of what we um, speak about on this time of year. I'd like to today especially take a look at hope, which is the first candle we did. And especially hope for the hopeless is kind of my emphasis. And I'll be looking at two perspectives, if you, if you will. One, uh, more of a temporal uh, hopelessness, and the other, an eternal hopelessness. The passage that we read this morning was from Second Thessalonians. Turn there, for, if you will, to chapter 2. We'll only be looking at two of those verses, but that whole section is a very wonderful passage. Second Thessalonians chapter 2, and beginning with the 16th verse. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. What a wonderful couple of verses to hang on to, to remind us of God's saving work through grace given to those that he has saved. And because of his salvation that he gives people, we have eternal comfort and good hope, these verses tell us. God's love and grace is the basis for eternal encouragement in the face of any present difficulty or struggles that we may be going through. And those are temporal. Very real, but they're temporal. They will only be with you while you're here in this life. Temporal in the fact that you'll not take these with you to heaven. What a great thing to look forward to, isn't it? 
I don't think there's anyone here that doesn't struggle with some difficulty in their own lives or in their family lives. But it's all temporal. Also, God gives hope for the future because we know that one day we will be with Him eternally. This hope is good, or another way to define that, it's beneficial, for it assures believers of the return of their Savior who has already won the victory. The battle has already been won. And you are the recipient of the the benefits of that. I'd like to look at a couple examples that I looked at in the New Testament primarily of hope for the hopeless. These stories have much more in depth than I'll be able to get to today. And there's a lot of message in it. But I wanted to share them with the thought of having hope. Turn, if you will, to John chapter 4. This will be the first example. This chapter took place early in Jesus' earthly ministry. The Gospel of John was written by the Apostle John, who was one of Jesus' disciples. And he walked with Jesus during Jesus' earthly ministry. He was with him the whole time. John wrote this Gospel by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And he tells us in his own book what his purpose was for writing the Gospel. In John 20, 30 and 31, he says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So the stories, the examples, the parables, the various things that John wrote in his book the Gospel of John are there for that purpose. Chapter 4 provides us details of an encounter that Jesus had with a Samaritan woman. Jesus is passing through Samaria on his way from Judea to Galilee. There are generally three routes to travel to Galilee from Judea. This road was the most direct and the shortest way, which you would think most people would take. But it was not the desired route. Because for a Jewish traveler, it would take them through the country of Samaria. The Jewish people looked at the Samaritans as lower than a dog. That doesn't mean much to us. It doesn't It doesn't really uh, give us a good picture. But a dog in the, the biblical times, and especially in Israel, was a scoundrel and 
the lowest of beings. They looked at the Samaritans as even lower than that. And they despised them. The feelings were generally mutual. Many Samaritans probably had the same um, discontent and hatred for the Jewish people. So let's read a few verses starting with verse 1 of chapter 4. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. As I said, I don't have a lot of time today, nor was it my intent to actually dissect this passage for all that may be there for us. It is, is, is very rich with what takes place in this story. And if you haven't heard it, it's worth studying and, and, and reading a, a sermon on or listening to someone preach on that topic alone because it's, it's a wealth of information and quite a blessing. But I will be summarizing this story and hopefully pointing out to you the hope that I hope all of us will see. Jesus and his disciples are traveling to, to Galilee through Samaria, and they arrive at a town called, it's called Sychar, and we're told that Jesus is weary from his journey. Depending on what clock John is using as he writes this, Jewish time or Roman time, it's either noon or 6 p.m. They both kind of used a different uh, method of, of time scale. Either way, Jesus is weary, according to this story. Jesus directs his disciples to go into town and get food for them. They've been traveling. And he's left alone sitting beside a well. Some immediate conclusions we can get just from this short description that we already have. Jesus is weary or fatigued from the journey. We'll see in a minute that he's thirsty and he's hungry. All these are common issues that humans deal with. Another hour or so, you'll be dealing with that. You'll probably be thinking about lunch. Everyone deals with that. But these details that are given to us confirm that Jesus is a true man. We believe Scripture teaches the incarnation of Jesus, that He didn't come as only a God, and He's here in spirit, which was one of the theories that people would argue, but that He actually came as a man. That's what we celebrate this time of year, that He came as a man. And he came as a man in order to die for those who were to believe on him. John wrote in chapter 1 of the Gospel that the Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. 
We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father full of grace and truth. Jesus came to earth as a man, and as a man he dealt with all the very same issues and circumstances that are common to all of us. He had to sleep at night. He had to eat to keep his his nourishment. He had to drink. So here we see that he's sitting at this well, and a woman comes to draw water. Verse 7, a woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. When Jesus addressed the Samaritan woman in this story, he violated many social customs of the day that were, in many cases, built on prejudices. According to these customs, a man did not have a public conversation with a woman. That would be a no-no in his case and in his location. A Jew doesn't have anything to do with a Samaritan. And typically, you didn't have a conversation with strangers. So Jesus crushed all of these particular customs, these norms. Jesus asked her for water because he was thirsty. And probably because he didn't have a vessel to be able to pull water out of the well. And this woman did. So he can't, he's sitting at the well, but he can't even get the water at the bottom of the well because he doesn't have any way to retrieve it. So he asked this woman to draw him some water. The fact that the woman came to the well by herself during the heat of the day implies that she's not accepted by the other women of the town. She's by herself. The town's women would come together as a group to fetch their water and It was probably a time of fellowship and catching up and seeing how their families are doing and swapping recipes and anything else that they might do together as a group. But they would come when it was cooler. This woman is not included in that crowd. So there's definitely something going on here with this woman that she's by herself. Even this early in the story, we can pick up on that. Jesus ends up having a similar conversation with her about water that he had previously had in chapter 3 of John with Nicodemus. Nicodemus being a, a leader of Israel, this woman being a Samaritan. Neither Nicodemus nor the woman initially understood that Jesus was actually speaking of their spiritual needs, not their temporal, physical needs, when he had this discussion with them. Since the woman didn't understand what he was getting at, Jesus took a more direct route to address her need for salvation, because that's what he was really there for. 
this is detailed in verses 10 until the end of the chapter of chapter 4. We find through this story that the Samaritan woman is indifferent. She's an outcast from her own village, probably from her own family. She's flippant. She's a despised Samaritan. She's immoral. And she doesn't conform to the norms of society. She was living a life that from a human perspective was hopeless. With no hope of being able to come out of many of those circumstances on her own. But this woman did not know that on that day, at that hour, she had a divine appointment with the King of Kings. She needed to be born again. And only Christ could meet her need. The story goes on to say that the woman left her jar and went into the town to tell the people about this man, Jesus. In verse 39, John wrote that many Samaritans from that town ended up believing in him because of this woman's testimony. And many more believed because of his message when they came out to see him. To understand what is even taking place, this is Samaria. The gospel wasn't even supposed to be going to them really at this point. It was supposed to be going to the Jews. But here's the Messiah taking the gospel message to the Samaritans. And many believed on him. Most commentators I read believe that this woman was also saved that day. That she heard the gospel message and responded. This woman had every reason to see her life circumstances and feel hopelessness. But Jesus Christ gave her hope through salvation. She experienced what Paul would later write in Thessalonians, that God loves her and gave her eternal comfort and good hope through grace. Did her circumstances instantly change and get better? Probably not. She was still looked down upon by the Jews as a despised Samaritan. She still had many of the same struggles and difficulties that she had to deal with in life. But she now has a new future. Her life is going to change. Her spiritual life is going to change. This hope is secured by God and through Jesus Christ himself. So it's one that will be accomplished, that is accomplished, and there is nothing that can stop it from happening. Because it's God himself that does it. Look now at John chapter 5. 
there's another example I'd like you to look at briefly, beginning in verse 1. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now, there is in Jerusalem, by the sheep gate, a pool, in Aramaic, called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me in the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I am going, another steps down before me. Jesus said, Get up. Take up your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed. And he took up his bed and walked. Here is a man who was an invalid for 38 years. Presumably his whole life. And they give us an age because they want us to realize that this has been his life circumstances. This is all he's known. This is what he has been dealing with. He was probably a beggar and depended on other people's generosity to obtain even the most basic of daily needs because he had no way to be able to earn it himself. At certain times of the year, he would somehow work his way to the pool called Bethesda in Jerusalem and wait for the water to stir. And when that happened, if he was able to get down in the pool, he might be healed. but he couldn't always depend on someone being there to help him get into the pool at the appointed time. To which Jesus... I'm sorry. Jesus walked by and he sees this man and he knows his circumstances. He knows he's been there a long time. He sees that he is begging in his condition that he's in. He sees this man... And he asked him if he wants to be healed. The man explains his hopelessness. That he didn't even have anyone to help him get into the pool. I can't get in the pool on my own. And I don't always have help. Imagine his desperation. If he thought he saw the, the pool water move and he had the desire to try to get in there only to know that I can't even move and get in there. I have no one to help me. It just helps to add on to that hopelessness that he has. To which Jesus commanded him to get up and take up his bed and walk. And at once, the man was healed and he took up his bed and walked. Here's another person who by all standards of the time he lived in, in fact, by today's standards, he would probably have untold difficulties in life. But he would have every reason to look at his circumstances and feel hopelessness. 
But Jesus healed him both physically and spiritually. He had a divine appointment with the great physician, Jesus Christ, who is his only greatest hope. This man experienced what Paul would later write to the Thessalonians, that God loves him and gave him eternal comfort and good hope through grace. While this man's circumstances probably did change substantially just by the fact he was healed, this story is not intended to insinuate at all that if you believe in Jesus that you're going to be healed from all your illnesses or that all your difficulties will instantly go away. That's not what the the meaning of this story is. While God can heal and frequently does, He doesn't always do so in His great wisdom and will. But more important, this man now has a future that is based on the promises of God and accomplished by and through Jesus Christ. And he has a future to be able to look forward to where he won't have to deal with these difficulties that he has struggled with for 38 years. Those won't be going with him in the next life. One more story, Acts chapter 3. Now Peter and John are going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour, and a man lame from birth was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple, that is called the beautiful gate, to ask alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, Look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. Here's another lame beggar. This time he's asking for money at the temple because he figures, hey, these guys are coming to the temple to worship. They're probably going to be pretty generous. How can they say no? They're going to the temple of God. The man had been lame from birth and he depended on someone else to get him to the temple gate so that he could beg. A lame person in the first century would have had a very difficult time. There were no wheelchairs, no elevators, no ADA laws, no accessible sidewalks or businesses. Depending on your, your difficulties, you literally may have to be carried to wherever you go, as this man was. 
This man had to beg for his existence. And he had every reason to look at his life as being hopeless. But on this day, through Peter and John, he was introduced to Jesus Christ and healed in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. He experienced too what Paul would later write to the Thessalonians, that God loves him and gave him eternal comfort and good hope through grace. J.I. Packer in his book Concise Theology writes in his section on hope, living between the two comings of Christ, Christians are to look backward and forward. Back to the manger, the cross, the empty tomb, whereby salvation was won for them. And forward to their meeting with Christ beyond this world, their personal resurrection and the joy of being with their Savior in glory forever. That's what these three people that we've looked at were able to do in an instant. Their life changed because of the grace of God and the gospel. These individuals now have hope that is based on Jesus Christ and his work. And if you're a Christian, and you're struggling with difficulties, if you're wondering why God may have dealt you this hand that you're dealing with, maybe it's bad health, maybe it's poor financial situations, or family discord, or lost family members, maybe you've recently lost a spouse or other immediate family member, there's many hardships and difficulties we deal with in life. All these things are very real hurts and can cause confusion and loneliness. But I remind you that the Scriptures tell us to have hope. For God loves us. And He gives us eternal comfort and good hope through grace. And the rest of that that verse is, and He can comfort your heart and establish you in every good work and word. That's where we get our comfort. That's where we get our hope. All these situations may not go away, especially immediately. You may take your bad health to your deathbed. You may never be a rich person. It's probably a blessing. You may have family members that will never come to know Christ. That's all of us do. There's hope. And we cannot give up on that hope. Even for that lost person. We keep praying for them. We keep exampling Christ to them and loving on them. And we keep praying that God will save them. We don't give up. These people that we looked at are persons who went from people with no hope to people who have hope because of the saving power of Jesus. 
They now have a future that is free of the temporal pains and circumstances of this life. And they have the ability and power that Jesus, from Jesus, to get through each day until that appointed time. But I do want to shift to a different hopelessness that has a far more tragic ending than these other stories. For there was a man who chose to follow Jesus through his early, the early part of Jesus' earthly ministry named Judas. Later, Jesus calls him as one of his twelve disciples. We're introduced to him in scriptures as Judas Iscariot. His name is always listed last in the naming of the twelve disciples. And he's always identified as a traitor or a betrayer. Imagine having that attached to your name for all human history. Judas's life is the greatest story of lost opportunity. Judas walked, talked, and fellowshiped with Jesus Christ. Imagine that. Imagine that. He sat under Jesus' teachings and witnessed Jesus' miracles taking place. He came to believe that Jesus was the Messiah, but Judas had a dark secret. Judas lived for money. He was greedy. And he saw a great opportunity by following Jesus because if Jesus became great and powerful and established his his earthly kingdom as he is claiming, then surely he will appoint me into some important role. And he's looking for the power and the monetary benefit that that may give him. While all the disciples followed Jesus and sat under his teachings, the eleven responded to his message and came to love him more and more. But as those three years of Jesus' earthly ministry progressed, it became increasingly clearer to Judas that Jesus was not who he thought he was. Jesus was, even, Jesus was even telling them that he was going to be put to death. This can't possibly be the Messiah. What was I thinking following this man? How was this supposed to achieve the earthly kingdom in his mind? Judas came to believe that he had wasted three years of his life following Jesus. Instead of hearing the gospel and believing on Jesus as the other disciples and many others did, Judas's heart became harder and harder. John gives us a glimpse into Judas's motives when he wrote in John 12:6 that Judas was a thief. That was his purpose in life. That was his goal in life was to steal and have money. 
Judas was in charge of the money for the Jesus and the disciples. He carried the money bag. And he was skimming off of the top of the money that was received. Imagine this man is stealing from Jesus Christ. We can't even imagine. But that's what was going on. When Jesus publicly rebuked Judas in chapter 12, this was probably the last straw for Judas. Judas began to try to recoup his losses, so he decides to make the best out of this situation. His hate began to build, and he slips away from Bethany, and he travels to Jerusalem, where he contacts the chief priests, and he made an offer to betray Jesus to them for a fee. Of course, money has to have something to do with this. After making some arrangements, Judas returns. He rejoins Jesus and the disciples and they go to a house that has an upper room where they are having supper. And Jesus does the example of being a servant and washes the disciples' feet. All twelve disciples have their feet washed. He even washed Judas' feet in this. the one that he knew would be betraying him. During this time, John says that Jesus was troubled in his soul because Judas was present. And because of the evil that was in Judas' heart, it was causing a disruption to to Jesus' spirit and disturbed him, distressed him, troubled his soul. as we know that Judas had already determined to sell Jesus to the Jews. So Jesus confronted him and sends him away so that he can have some time with the other disciples. John 13 says of Judas Iscariot that after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him and secured the deal. Judas could have at any time gone to Jesus and repented and asked for forgiveness from him for what he was doing at any time. And Jesus would have done so. Luke 22 says that Satan entered into Judas. Satan can't enter into a Christian as he did into Judas which is a clue to us that obviously Judas was not a believer. He was not a Christian. He was not a true follower of Jesus. So this statement is very telling to Judas' spiritual position. He's lost. He's unsaved. He's unrepentant. Judas was so controlled by his anger and greed that he rejected the only one that could have saved him. And he later hung himself and couldn't even do that right. And the rope broke or something happened and his body falls to the bottom of the area he's at and 
ruptures on stones. The apostles, when they were meeting together to pick a replacement for Judas after Jesus' ascension into heaven, tells us in Acts that Judas had turned aside to go to his own place. Interesting words. I think this likely means that Judas worked his way into hell. He was going to his own place. I think that's what that means. Wow. What what an absolute tragic story. Especially in comparison to the other three we looked at. But you know what? Judas' life is a warning to us. That even though you're going to church and trying to do all the right things to be a good person, if you're not saved, Judas's fate is yours. Judas's punishment is yours. It isn't enough to be a regular church member. It isn't enough to Try to be a good moral person. Because the only way to be saved is to confess and repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the only way. You can't do it on your own. You can't earn your way to heaven. No matter how hopeful you may be or how well you think you're doing in life. It's hopeless without Jesus Christ. In the end, after the appointed time when death comes to you, if you have not confessed Jesus, which is the only question, are you a follower of Jesus? Nothing else matters. I have heard of times I have never experienced this myself in the sense of someone I know, but I've even heard that people who have been long-term Bible study teachers, people who have been preachers in various churches, later in life make a profession of faith and become Christians. So even people who are serving in the church could possibly not be saved. But until that time of death, you have an opportunity. You have a hope for the hopelessness that you're facing currently without Christ. This time of year, we we want to show you the only hope that we can possibly have, and that's Jesus Christ. And we hope that you know Him as your Lord and Savior and that you're following Him. Every Sunday we take advantage of of the opportunity to have communion where we are able to remind ourselves of the hope that we have through grace. That good hope. We remember what Jesus did. We look back at the 
the birth, the manger. We look at the cross. We look at the tomb. We look at the future glory that we have with him someday. And that is are things given to us by the grace of God to be able to deal with the struggles that we deal with today in our flesh and get through those things. But it also gives us that great hope of being with him someday in heaven. And that all these things that we struggle with will be gone. And I hope you look forward to that. If you're someone here today who has never made a profession of faith, that you've never repented and confessed your sins and and believed on Jesus Christ, I hope that you will, even when we're doing communion, come, come forward. We'll have someone talk with you and pray with you. We'd like to show you what Scripture says about that. Don't leave today without knowing Him as your Lord and Savior. So, let's uh, go to communion. We're going to pass out the elements. Have the worship team come up. Please hold the bread and the cup until we all have it and we'll observe it together.